thought it would just be uh, appropriate for us as we gather here today to talk about campus outreach, to think about um, uh, the commission that the Lord Jesus gave to us uh, in, in the book of Matthew at the end of his uh, earthly sojourn before he ascended to his Father in heaven. So let me invite you to take a Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, because that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Robert just read to you from verses 16 through 20 of that chapter, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Let me give you just a bit of a running start uh, uh, in terms of where we're going to be and and what we're going to be talking about. I wish we had time to study this entire book, because uh, the Great Commission that comes in Matthew chapter 28 is really the culmination of the, of the whole book. There are themes and symbols and all the rest that have been coming to, to fruition throughout the book, and it all comes to a head right here. The story of the book of Matthew is really the story of Jesus, of Nazareth, of Bethlehem, making claims about himself and then backing those claims up through his teaching and through the miracles that he performs. So throughout the book at various points, if you've read it, you would have seen Jesus make claims to be the king of Israel, to be the son of God, to be the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah, to be the mediator of a brand new covenant between God's people and God from the book of of Jeremiah, to be his people's representative and substitute and champion, to be the one way in all the universe for people to be saved from their sins and given eternal life. And then in the wake of every one of those claims Jesus made, you would have seen him back those up again and again and again with teaching and with miracles. If you've read the book, then you remember as Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and submitted himself to the will of his Father. You, you remember that he went to the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You, you saw the despair of the disciples on the day that he died. But, but you also saw in the book of Matthew, if you've read it before, The graves crack open in the city of Jerusalem on the day that he died. You saw the curtain of the temple tear in two from top to bottom. And then you saw how early on that particular Sunday morning, the women saw the tomb opened and they met Jesus risen from the dead. And so the question by Matthew chapter 28 is, all right, so what now? The the death of Jesus is done. The resurrection of Jesus is done. What happens now and how does the story end? Well, in one sense, I guess it is kind of an ending, right? And Jesus' earthly work is done. He's no longer going to be with his disciples. Within within just a few minutes of what he says here in Matthew 28, he's going to ascend into heaven according to Luke and Acts. And the disciples aren't going to see him again until the day they die and go to be with him in heaven. So it is an ending. If you turn the page, you can see that there's no more of Matthew, right? It it moves on to Mark immediately. So, So in that sense, it is an ending. But in another sense, the ending of the book of Matthew is really just the beginning of God's purposes in the world. Why? Well, even though it looked like an ending to the apostles and the disciples who were gathered on that mountain, even though it looked like something important was coming to an end, the the reality is that when Jesus ascended into heaven after saying these words, he wasn't just bidding the apostles farewell from an amazing experience of the last three years and, and letting them go back to their normal everyday lives. No, their lives were changed forever. Because here in Matthew 28, Jesus was giving them a mission that would carry on until the day he came back to take them home. Well, that mission that Jesus gave here in Matthew 28, so far, is just a little bit under 2,000 years old. And generation after generation of Christians have been carrying it out through the years, through the generations, right down to us, right here and right now. You see, evangelism 
the practice and the action of telling other people about Jesus is not just a spiritual discipline. I know that we talk about it like that sometimes as Christians. It's a spiritual discipline. It's just, it's just something you have to do as a Christian that's a little bit painful and a little bit embarrassing, but, but ultimately good for you, like, like exercise. But no, evangelism is not that ultimately and finally. Ultimately and finally, evangelism is an act of love and allegiance. You know, on the one hand, it's an act of love to a broken, dying world that needs a savior. On the other hand, it's an act of love and allegiance to a king who has given us the mission of pointing that broken, dying world to him for salvation. That's what we're talking about this morning as we look at this passage from Matthew 28. At my own church back in, uh, back in Louisville at 3rd Avenue, uh, with each sermon, I always like to give a couple of sentences that sort of encapsulate the, the meaning of the text that we're studying. And if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, it ought to encapsulate also the meaning of the sermon that I'm preaching to you this morning. So I'm going to give you a couple of sentences that I think encapsulate the meaning of Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the message that Jesus was getting across and the message that Matthew's getting across to us as readers. So if you're a note taker, these will be the uh, two most important sentences that you'll be able to write down today because it'll encapsulate the meaning of what we're talking about. You'll be able to come back to it uh, later on, remember what we talked about. If you're, if you're not a note taker, you know, you could still grab a pen and write it down. It's not gonna kill you to write down two sentences. It's very short. So write it down, you can remember it. Here, here it is, I think, the main idea of Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. There is one king, and he offers mercy to the world. But he does so through us. So go tell them about the king. I'll say it again so you can write it down. I think that's the message of Matthew 28, 16 to 20. There is one king, and he offers mercy to the world, but he does so through us. So tell them about the king. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as we study this passage for the next few minutes that you will be spurred on and encouraged to join Christians from the last 2,000 years in speaking over and over and over again as naturally as breathing the incredible news that the king has come and has declared to a fallen sinful world that for now, Rebels can be forgiven. I want to come at this passage today with really kind of five quick points. And I want to do it. It's kind of five questions. If you remember uh, when you were in kindergarten or third grade or whatever it was, you would have learned this little riff of questions to ask about something. Who, what, when, where, and how, right? Who, what, when, where, and how? Well, those are the questions that I want to ask of this text and answer with you this morning, but we're going to mix them up. So instead of who, what, when, where, how, which we all know, it's going to be where, who, why, what, how. So if you can catch those and write them down, good on you. But here we go. Number one, where? Where did this thing happen and why is it significant? Well, at the end of the last section, back up in verse 10, the resurrected Jesus told his disciples to go on to a place called Galilee where they would see him. Now, apparently after his resurrection, Jesus made several appearances in and around the city of Jerusalem, which was down in the south in the nation of Israel. But eventually the followers of Jesus in obedience to his instructions, made their way up to Galilee, up in the north, where they spent about 40 days being instructed one-on-one -on -one and in groups and face-to-face -face with Jesus. Now, Matthew, the, the gospeler, omits most of that history. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us about it in the same detail that some of the other gospels do. And he jumps right to the end of the whole thing, where Jesus meets his followers on this mountain in Galilee. Now, why Galilee, though? I mean, is it just that that was kind of Jesus' home region? Is it, is it just because that was kind of his home base as he went out on these sorties of ministry? Well, no, there's more to it than that. 
And for one thing, Galilee was important because it was, in fact, the place where Jesus did most of his ministry. Yes, he would go over to the Decapolis on the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. Yes, he would go down to Jerusalem for the feast days and he would preach and do miracles and do ministry there. But most of his ministry through the three years of, uh, of that time was done in this region of Galilee. And so I think part of the reason that Jesus takes his disciples to Galilee to launch them off into this, this mission was to communicate to them that their mission fundamentally hasn't changed. They're to do the same thing that they have been doing. Just continue to do it. You are to proclaim the arrival of the king and the fact that he offers mercy to the world through his life, death, and resurrection. Their mission picks up right where Jesus' mission had left off. Second, though, if you were to flip all the way back, and this is, this is maybe even more profound. If you were to flip all the way back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew writes this, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, that's Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. So this is the very beginning, he goes to Galilee. And Matthew says that he does so, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the, that's a bunch of names for this Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. Those people dwelling in darkness in Galilee have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, what, what does that mean? What's the significance of it? Why does Matthew make such a big deal about Jesus' ministry beginning in Galilee? Well, the reason is because Galilee was way up in the north of, of the, the nation of Israel. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. They settled up in the north. And so, in the course of history, when armies like that of Babylon or like that of Assyria would invade Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, sitting there in the region of Galilee, were the first ones to take the hammer blows. And in fact, through the years, when Assyria invaded the northern part of Israel, Galilee, they resettled Assyrian people throughout that region. And then Israelites began to intermarry with Assyrians. And so that whole region of Israelites became this sort of half-breed Jew. And so the more pure Jews down in the south around Jerusalem looked at the people in the north and said, you, you are impure. You are the people who have been most ravaged by sin. You're the people who have been broken down. You're not even really Israelites anymore. You're a bunch of mutts. Do you see what Matthew is saying? It was, it was, however, right there where God's people had suffered the most, where they'd received the hardest hammer blows of invasion, where the darkest effects of sin could be seen. The people that were seen to be mutts, that's the place that God's son first revealed himself in Galilee of the Gentiles. And now here again, as Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, I want you to be there in the darkest of places so that the resurrected Christ can most brightly reveal himself to those people. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. It's so encouraging to, to you and I who are in fact broken rebels against God that the light of the gospel first shines at the very bottom of the barrel. The light pierces into the blackest of darknesses. The message of life and of light takes root at the deadest place and begins to change everything. There is massive hope in that. And it is the only hope that you and I have. These folks who were gathered here at the front of the platform just a few minutes ago, whether in Lexington or other, other places in Cincinnati or, or those who are coming to the University of Louisville, they go every day of their lives into dark, dead places. And the University of Kentucky may have a beautiful campus. The University of Louisville may be aspiring to have a beautiful campus. 
But the reality is that no matter how beautiful they get in terms of architecture, those campuses are full of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're full of people who are by nature children of darkness and who need to hear the message of the gospel. For those of you who are involved in campus outreach, God bless you as you walk into that darkness, holding out the only message of life and light and salvation that the world is ever going to hear. But brothers and sisters, those of you who, like, like me, are, are not involved in campus outreach particularly, now you too, as you walk into your schools or as you walk into your places of business or your office buildings or your places of service, wherever it is that you work and go on a daily basis, sometimes that's even your family. You too, friend, are walking into a dark place with the only message of light and salvation the world is ever gonna hear. Let it be continually on your lips because they need to hear it. Here's the second question. Who, who is this commission given to? One of the biggest questions that scholars ask about this particular passage is, is exactly who was here? And to whom did Jesus really give this commission? Some people look at verse 16 and read it, I think, very kind of flatly. And they say, well, it's only the 11. It's only the 11 that were present here on the mountain. It's the original apostles, of course, minus, minus Judas, right? And some people read that so deeply, in fact, as to go so far even to say that the commission to go out and proclaim the gospel applied only to the 11. And so that when the 11 passed from the scene, the commission expired, and so you and I are just in a kind of 2,000-year holding pattern as churches now. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what's going on. I think, I think something else is actually happening here, and I think there were more people present, in fact, than just the 11 apostles. Let me tell you why. If you look up the page to verse 7, you'll see that the angel is said to tell Jesus' disciples to go to Galilee. Now hold on to that word, disciples. And then look at verse 10, where Jesus said to tell my brothers to go there. Now you could read those two words, disciples and brothers, to, to refer only to the 11. You could, unless you read the whole rest of the book of Matthew. And if you read the rest of the book of Matthew, you realize that every time Jesus talks about or refers to the disciples and refers to my brothers, he's not just referring those two words to the 11. He's referring to a much broader group of people who are surrounding Jesus and following his teaching and coming in various ways and various degrees to believe in him and understand who he is. So yes, the emphasis is on the 11 here. They're, they're sort of at the center of the circle, but it looks to me like there are more people around and Jesus is giving this as a, as a commission, not just to the 11 until the day that they pass from the scene, but as a commission that goes from generation to generation to generation of all those who recognize Jesus for who he is. If you look at verse 17 too, you can see that phrase there that, that when these disciples, this broader group of people saw him, they, they worshiped him, but some of them in that broader group doubted. Some of them doubted. I don't know about you, but I find that sort of strangely, ironically encouraging. That some of the people who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead hesitated. That's what the word means. It's not so much that they disbelieved. It's that they were, they were scared. They were scared to do this mission. They hesitated about it. I find that strangely and ironically encouraging because it reminds me that that these people, even when they saw the resurrected Jesus, didn't just sort of in a moment, in a flash, become spiritual he-men who were able to go out and proclaim the gospel with no hesitation whatsoever. That's not what happened. 
They didn't become spiritual giants. It was a process in them of coming to, 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 to have the Holy Spirit grow in them the courage that would allow them to rock the world with the message of the king eventually. So brother, sister, do you, do, you, do you hesitate sometimes in your heart when a moment comes that you can speak the message of the gospel to someone else? And if that happens in you, it's, it's just like me. I assume it's just like Robert, maybe not Will, but it's just like many of us. The Holy Spirit growing courage in you, growing conviction in you, growing the faith to be able to speak is a process. And it sometimes takes time. So don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged if you see that courage and that conviction and that faith growing in your heart. Yes, these people hesitated. Many of them hesitated. But the more important point is that they didn't walk away. And in time, the message of the gospel exploded all over the world because of their witness. Here's number three. Why? Why are these people given this commission? Why does Jesus give them this commission? Well, he tells them in verse 18. He gives them the basis for the mission that he's about to, to give them. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. It's just an extraordinary statement if you think about it. Sometimes that, that phrase and that sentence can be so familiar to us that we kind of you know, read over it like, like water off a duck's back and we forget about it. We just don't catch the meaning of it. But imagine if I stood up here the first time you're sort of meeting me and listening to me talk and if I stood in this pulpit and said, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's crazy. You would run me out of town if Robert said it. You'd fire him, and rightly so. If Will said it, you'd fire him, and, and rightly so. I mean, there's nobody that can say that kind of thing and make it make sense. I mean, the, the, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time couldn't have put on the imperial purple and walked in front of the legions of Rome and raised his arms and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He would have looked like a fool. If the Queen of England put on her best dress and stood in front of the cameras and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It just sounds foolish, but it doesn't sound foolish on the lips of the king of kings. It doesn't sound foolish on Jesus' lips. It fits because it's true. The crown of the universe rests easy on Jesus' brow. Look with me, too, at the way these last few verses of Matthew are absolutely dominated by the word all. All authority, all nations, all that I have commanded, all the days. Over and over and over again. It's all. It's not that Jesus has received some extra authority here. He always had all authority. I mean, you think back to his ministry in Jerusalem and, and in Galilee. If he wanted to raise the dead, he could raise the dead. None of you can do that. None of you have that kind of all authority. Jesus does. He has the authority with a word to drive out demons from people. He has, an, has authority at a word to say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. He always had all authority. But the thing is, that authority of Jesus until this moment was localized. It was localized to Galilee, to Capernaum, to Jerusalem, to Israel, but not anymore. It's not localized anymore. Now, the throne of David is exalted over the entire cosmos and therefore the mission to proclaim the king is globalized to the cosmos. All authority in heaven and on earth is his, and therefore we carry out the mission. But what is the mission exactly? That's, that's the fourth question. What, what is the mission? Well, 
Jesus gives the mission in verses 19 and 20. And essentially, that mission is that Jesus' followers are to be his heralds. They're to be his royal ambassadors in the world. So the heart of that commission is the command, make disciples. In other words, proclaim who King Jesus is. Proclaim the forgiveness of sin that he has won and now offers to this rebellious world. And bring people to be disciples, which just means followers of him. So that's the heart of it. You ask, what's the mission of the church? What's the mission of, of Christianity? What is, our, what is our goal in this world until Jesus comes back? That's the heart of it. The proclamation of the good news about Jesus and making disciples of King Jesus. And doing that, he says, in all the nations. Now, now what does that mean, all, all the nations? Well, there's a movement in our time to define that word, that phrase, all nations, very precisely in terms of ethno-linguistic groups, people groups, they're sometimes called, unreached people groups, UPGs. They even have a, an acronym, UPGs. So, in that movement, scholars have determined that there are, among the seven billion people on planet Earth, precisely 9,756 ethno-linguistic people groups in the world. Or 16,713 or 27,562, or 10,517, or 11,255, depending on who's talking and counting. So, see, it's, it's not really very precise at all, and, and that's, that's the problem. Because that phrase, ethne, nations, is not really talking ultimately about anything like that. Oh, sometimes it does. Sometimes it's talking about a socio-ethno-linguistic group, but not always. In the Bible, that word ethne, nations, can be used for all kinds of things. It can be used for a particular ethnic group. Sometimes it can even be used, though, for a political empire like Babylon or Assyria. Sometimes it can even be used for the entire Gentile world without distinction. So you see the point here? Jesus is not giving technical instructions to go develop an organization that's going to make one single disciple in each of 16,713 distinct ethno-linguistic groups in the world and then the end will come. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, rather, is that I want you to go out and make disciples of the whole stinking thing and don't stop until I get back. I mean, just, just by the way, that, that, that's why it's so silly when some ministries or organizations put up charts and maps with a countdown counter of people groups and say that they're going to finish the Great Commission by making one disciple in each of the 16,000 people groups. No, you're not. No, you're not going to finish it. The Great Commission that Jesus gives here is to preach the gospel without borders. Preach the gospel profligately like, a, like the, the sower sowing the seed on every piece of ground that he can see until Jesus comes back. Preach it in empires, you preach it in countries, you preach it in ethno-linguistic groups, you preach it in cities, you preach it on farms, you preach it on the byways and the highways, everywhere until Jesus comes back. We are to make disciples and do it without distinction. Make disciples. That command though is modified by three other verbs. So you've got, you've got the word go in verse 19, baptizing and teaching in verse 20. Now, now, some people just thinking about the word go first, some people have used the fact that those three words aren't morphologic, like in form, imperatives in the Greek language. To say that, for example, the word go there really isn't an imperative. It's not a command, they say. And so they'll say, well, you know, uh, what it means is something more like 
as you go about your normal life and as you think about it, you should just tell people about Jesus. So there's no real missionary imperative, they say, in the word go. Well, let me just put put this point as sharply as I can. That's just flat wrong. I mean, yes, the word go may not have an imperative morphology. It may not be an imperative in that sense. But it's got an imperative sense. And anybody who studied Greek would tell you it's got an imperative sense. We're not just to float through this life thinking about the Great Commission as it comes to our minds. We're to go as those who are ambassadors of the king. We're to live our lives with our eyes wide open as active heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, the word go doesn't mean you have to go overseas. You can go right where you are in your job to the dark places in which the Lord has called you to be tomorrow morning, some of you. But it does mean that you go into those places looking to create opportunities to tell people about the king, looking for opportunities that you can take advantage of. It does mean go with a missionary mindset, not just float. Well, there are two other verbs there, too, that modify making disciples, and those are are baptism or baptizing and teaching. So first, baptism. Robert, this is a dangerous moment here because I'm a Baptist and it's there in the (laughs) text. You'll have your, you'll have your, (laughs) you'll, you'll, you can have your shot in like three weeks at Third Avenue. No, what I, what I want to, there's really one thing I want to say about it. There's a ton we can say about baptism. I'm not going to say it all. Baptism is all kinds of things. And, and even setting aside the sort of 500 year old interfamily discussion that uh, Baptists and Presbyterians have been having about this issue. What I want you to understand is that baptism, when you, when you do it, my baptism, your, your baptism, you know, whether that was when you became, let's not go there. Baptism, besides being the sign of the covenant, besides being a symbol of, of death to sin and resurrection to new life, besides being all of that, it is also a public declaration that your allegiance is with Jesus. When somebody in our church, we had, we had three, uh, well, four over the last, the last few weeks, four uh, Filipino, new, brand new brothers and sisters in Christ, four Filipino uh, brothers and sisters who stood up in the pulpit and, and gave a testimony, and then, and then we baptized them at the end of our service. And every single one of those, those brothers and sisters that got baptized back there was essentially taking the microphone of the universe and staring hell in the face and saying, I declare war on you. My allegiance is to King Jesus now. It's an amazing moment. It's an amazing moment when somebody comes to Christ and says, my allegiance is with him now. The phrase teaching them to obey, you can see what that is, right? And coming to Christ and giving your allegiance to Jesus isn't just a kind of one-time thing and then, you, and then you're done. No, if part of making disciples means that we teach them to obey everything Jesus has said, then that means that this following of Jesus is a lifelong commitment of following him, obeying him, learning to be more like him. You don't just make the decision once and then, and then you're finished. You give your life over to King Jesus. You learn his will. You become more and more like him as his spirit works to conform you to him. Fifth question is how. It's in verse 20. Jesus tells us how we're gonna carry this out. He promises his people there, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's an incredible promise, isn't it? That the king will be with us until the end of the age. It's a promise that he fulfills by, by the Holy Spirit living in us, by his presence with us as we, as we gather together in churches. 
Friends, that's how we do this mission. Not just by ginning up confidence in our own hearts, not just by developing sparkling personalities, right? To be able to go out and charm everybody we meet. No, no, no. We fulfill this commission by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to build the kind of confidence that allows us to speak about Jesus. That's how we do it. He is with us until the very end of the age. All right, some quick points of application, just three of them very fast. Number one from all of this, you need to understand that if you are a Christian, this commission is given to you, not just to somebody else. It's not just given to campus outreach people who are going onto these dark campuses. It's not just given to those of us who are standing up here in, in the black robes. It's given to you if you are a Christian. Friends, this is a transgenerational mission. For the last 2,000 years, generation after generation after generation of believers has held that torch and carried it into the darkness. And now, I mean, think about it. Now, in in the grand scheme, 2,000 years, now, for just a little while, for just a little while, between the time of our birth and the time of our, our death, the torch has fallen to us to carry into the darkness. To say to that world, there is a king who saves sinners. Go to him and you'll find salvation. Here's the second thing. This commission is not given just to you as an individual. But this commission is also given to us as a church. And one of the fascinating things to see in Matthew is how Jesus the king exercises royal authority to create the church as his embassy in the world. Matthew chapter 16, he constitutes the church or creates it. 18, he charters the church, gives it authority to speak in his name. And now in 28, here, he's, he's commissioning it. At uh, 3rd Avenue Baptist Church, because of sort of the nature of where we are next to a university, next to a seminary, we are just constantly flinging people all over the world with the message of Jesus. We have missionaries come in over and over again. Missionaries come in for three years and then they head off to to places all over the world, to to East Asia and to Iraq and to Kurdistan and to Turkey and just all these places. And in the next few weeks, we're gonna be saying goodbye to some people who are headed to Erbil, Iraq and some others who are headed to Izmir, Turkey. And we just say goodbye to people all the time And, and it's hard sometimes to do that. Robert was talking about saying goodbye to some of these staff members here. It's It's hard. It's so hard that I, you know, I kind of, I joke about wanting to have a missions emphasis that says to people, you need to go off mission for Jesus in 2018. Just stay here for a while. Stop leaving for crying out loud. But of course, I don't, I don't mean that, not for a second. I don't mean it. I mean, I'll, I'll take the pain of seeing people leave Third Avenue over and over and over again if it means that Jesus is exalted. I'll take it. And I know that that even for some of you to say goodbye to to some of these staff members who are coming to Louisville is a painful thing, but I trust that as Christians, if it means that Jesus is going to be exalted and people are going to be coming to trust Christ and be in heaven, you'll take it. Thank you for that. Thank you for entering into the pain of saying goodbye so that the king can be better known. Here's the third and last thing. This is an unstoppable mission. It is an utterly and completely unstoppable mission. Jesus will not fail in his mission to rescue and save his people. Now think about it. All authority has been given to Jesus. Not just part of it, not just half of it, not just 99% of the authority. All authority is given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. 
He died to save his people. And they're scattered all over the world. They're scattered throughout the University of Kentucky. They're scattered throughout the University of Louisville. And Jesus himself, the king, will stop at nothing to bring those people home. But brothers and sisters, that's going to happen through us. Because that's how he said it's going to happen. That's how he intended it to happen right from the very beginning. There's one last thing I want to tell you about. There there is, throughout the whole book of Matthew, a a structure to the book uh, that that I'm just going to mention to you very quickly. The structure of Matthew is that it's divided up essentially into five major sections. And each one of those five major sections follows the same pattern. First, you've got story or narrative, and then you have teaching or proclamation. So story and then proclamation. And that happens five times. Story, proclamation, story, proclamation, story, proclamation, story, proclamation. Well, you get through all five of those, and at the very end of the book, starting with Jesus' passion and then moving on through his resurrection, you get the story, but there's no corresponding proclamation section. So five times, story, proclamation, and then just story. Well, what's going on there? I mean, some people have said that Matthew must not have had a chance to finish his book. Maybe he died early or maybe something interrupted him and he just didn't get to finish it. Others have just kind of wondered, why did he end his book so abruptly without putting that last proclamation section on it? Well, I think the answer, friends, is that he deliberately didn't really end the book. He left it open for us to finish until the king comes back. Oh, brothers and sisters, until then, until that glorious day, let the gospel of the king be on your lips. Call this dark, dying, dead world to believe in him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for who you are. You are our savior, our king, our redeemer, our champion, our representative, our substitute. Father, we pray that you would cause us as your followers to always have the gospel on our lips, to always be ready at a moment's notice to give a reason for this hope that lives in us. Our Lord Jesus, we want to see you glorified, and we pray you would do that through Campus Outreach Lexington, Campus Outreach Louisville, Tates Creek Presbyterian, Third Avenue Baptist Church, and all your people scattered throughout the world. Let Jesus be honored and glorified. We pray in his name and always to his honor and glory. Amen.